I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high-quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics' Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere. You know, the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics' beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples. And so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this, talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx. And you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. We keep telling Chester that soon he'll be able to have the window open again because he loves that. Oh, that's the thing. CK came outside on the balcony last night for like the first time. He went out like a couple, like a week ago during the day for like a minute. But this time he just jumped out in the middle of the night and that's like the sign that spring is coming. I love that. <laughs> Speaking of CK, has that tattoo? Oh, it's good. Yeah, thank you. It's so gorgeous. It. Yeah, it's just like the perfect size, the perfect placement. I get to see him on my arm there every day. And and it's like, it's him. You know, it's not just a cat. It's very much my boy on my arm. So, you know, I was thinking about it. You asked me yesterday if I'd ever get a tattoo and I was like, no, but I would like, and I, I like that idea of the animals and I like your tattoo so much that I would ask for your person. Like I would she trust did. that person and I would, you know, go to her because you yeah. want someone who specializes. Exactly. And that, you know, that's going to perfectly capture like your, your person, your, your boy. So Okay. Speaking of tattoos, I have something to tell you that I think is relevant enough to this podcast, I guess. Um, TJ and I have been watching Ink Master. Oh, interesting. Have you heard of that show? I've heard of like, there's a couple different tattoo shows. Okay. So this one is the tattoo show. There's 13 seasons. We started at season one. And Dave Navarro is the host. Amazing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Dave Navarro is like such a pretty boy. And I, I, I can picture him with his tattoos and his perfect makeup. And TJ's not a fan of his like Batman <laughs> tattoos that he has. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but I'm going to look it up immediately. After. It's on Am- It's on Amazon Prime. It's honestly with the puppy. We can't. We don't want to finish. We're on the last season of the Sopranos series, and we don't want to finish it because we can't dedicate that much time and attention to a TV show right now because the puppy is so much work that we're always kind of paying attention to him in a way. And so Ink Master is perfect because you can kind of zone in and out. And um, it definitely didn't age well in regards to like, you know, (laughs) 
<laughs> 13 seasons. It hasn't been on the air for a long time. So I think it started maybe like in the early aughts. So of course you could imagine how a reality show like that aged. It's just is kind it, of Is it a competition? It's a competition. Yeah. Imagine. Yeah. There's like at the beginning uh, seasons anyways, there's only ever two women. I gotcha. Just like I not gotcha. a lot of representation, yep. diversity kind of thing. And um, for the first two seasons, at least I know like, well, actually, I don't know how the second season is going to turn out. So whatever. But it's it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I was actually listening to another podcast the other day and Dave Navarro came up twice because somebody was saying that they were hoping that Dave Navarro would host one of their true crime podcasts with them, but he ended up not doing it. So they got somebody else to be a host. Interesting. And Dave Navarro does the forward for Miss Pamela's I'm with the band, which Mm -hmm. I thought another little weird connection. Mm -hmm. Me and my dad have been watching RuPaul's Drag Race nonstop. That's like our go-to on the TV where you don't have to think too much. I've already seen it all. And I got my dad into it in the past year. And when we started watching it, he was like, just show me like the last season. Like, it's fine. Like, I don't want to watch like 13 seasons. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So I showed him that. And then he's like, maybe another season. Maybe mm-hmm. another season. He's like, let's do the all-stars. I don't want to do all, all of the episodes. And then we did all the all-stars. And now he's like, why don't we just go back to the beginning? And then he, found out, he found out about the untucked episodes as well. So now I have to pause before the lip sync so he can watch the backstage going ons and then go back to the episode he's like fully into it your dad is so cool I <laughs> I love him fun. so much that's awesome <laughs> yeah. well Great. it's nice to have something you know during lockdown right now so yeah yeah, yeah it has well welcome everybody to Muse's podcast Lynx what's this podcast all about We are all about the amazing women in rock and roll, from the wives, the girlfriends, the groupies, to the musicians, the PR women, the photographers, just any kind of rock and roll woman there is, we cover them. We love them. Yesterday was International Women's Day. It's always International Women's Day here. That's right. Welcome. Today, I'm going to be presenting the story of Whitney Houston. I'm excited for this one. Now, the reason why I chose Whitney was because her story has always fascinated me. I thought it would be a good time to bring her up, especially in light of the Free Britney movement and just reevaluating how our women were treated. Um, As we know, Whitney passed in 2012, Mm -hmm. but towards the late 90s and into those early aughts, she certainly wasn't helped by the press. Yeah. Yeah. In any kind of way, or as we'll see from this episode, from the episode, you know, many people in her circle. And now we can kind of look back on the incidents and, and how things happened and maybe just have a little bit of a different take on it. Or if you didn't have a take at all, then we'll just honor her and we'll just talk about her and her achievements. And then maybe it'll inspire somebody to go watch one of her movies or listen to one of her albums or something like that. Sounds great. Yeah. Now, what I did for this episode is a little bit different than what I've normally done. I decided not to read uh, an autobiography or a biography this time. I saw that there was a documentary on TV called Can I Be Me? And I thought, let me watch it and take some notes. If I have enough for an episode based out of this, great. And I'll also just add in a little bit of my own research and we'll see how that plays out in regards to an episode. Now with with a documentary, we're never going to get the kinds of details that we would in a biography, for example. So again, if anybody is inspired or fascinated by this story, then, you know, I encourage you to look up any uh, books in the library, buy something on Whitney, and then away you go. Perfect. Let's get into this. So when I began to put on the documentary, it just opens with us being aware that this documentary is about Whitney Houston's last successful world tour in 1999. At this point, you see Whitney and she really looks like she's in her element, almost like she's in a kind of 
prime. She's walking up to the stage. You can hear the crowd cheering in the background. She's looking happy. She's looking proud. She's looking beautiful, healthy. And she's walking up to the stage with her husband, Bobby Brown. Her voice at this point is impeccable. And she's on the stage and she's singing the song, I Will Always Love You. But before she gets to the chorus, she takes this pause. And then you hear the roar of the crowd that knows that she's about to hit that chorus. So she's keeping them waiting. She's keeping them hanging on for this moment. She's looking around. She's breathing deeply. And then she hits it. (laughs) And you get chills. And everybody's screaming. And you're just like, wow. Yeah. The talent. This was really a turning point in in Whitney's life. Unfortunately, as we know, she has a very devastating loss of her life. And in regards to the turning point, things got worse from this time and point on. But in reflecting on her as an artist and as a singer, some of her bandmates were interviewed. Her drummer compared her body to that of a bodybuilder because her band her back would expand so much as she sang it was almost like an active sport her saxophonist called her voice angelic her backup singer says her voice was a gift from god her band members would say that her voice broke barriers as a black female artist being on top of the pop charts she changed history for many people but she paid a price for it yes she did When Whitney wasn't taking care of herself and her voice wasn't at its best, the band would have to lower the key in the register for her. Let's go back to Whitney's upbringing. She grew up in New Jersey. She was in touch with her spirituality. And according to her brother, they read the Bible. They went to church and sang gospel songs. So Whitney knew that she had a special gift and she wanted to break barriers and she knew that she would become something and someone special. There's footage of Whitney and Whitney's mother singing at the church. Her mother was actually the choir leader. Her mother, Sissy, was actually quite a singer in her own right as well. She never reached the level of fame that Whitney ever would, but I'll mention somebody else in her family soon that reached quite a bit of fame. There's a 1975 footage of Whitney at church. She said that these were times that she absolutely cherished. Her mom orchestrated the choir. Whitney sang in front of the mic in front of everybody. And her mom really is the one that taught her her style and taught her how to sing properly. So Whitney wasn't self-taught. She had a lot of mentors and she had a lot of guidance from people who knew what they were doing. It's great that she had that growing up. And then the church, yeah, was the great place to learn and how to sing. Mm -hmm. Whitney was the youngest child of the family. She was the baby. And a family member has said that she was spoiled. So was I. Yeah, so was I. (laughs) I was an only child, so I was very spoiled. (laughs) Uh, Whitney was the only girl. Her mother was more on the straight and stern side. And Whitney was extremely close with her father. Her mother was one of the early momager types, making the decisions on Whitney's behalf. Her mother guided her, chose who was around her professionally, I'll say, and influenced her voice and training choices. They were the first Black family to move into East Orange, New Jersey. Wow. Gary Houston, her brother, admits to have trying drugs at the age of 10. So this just is going to show how available this was during this time and at this age for them. I got this from a Healthline article, and it says, as seen in Whitney, so it must be another kind of documentary, Houston grew up in a middle-class home in East Orange, New New Jersey, that was surrounded by drug culture. Her brother, Michael, admitted to enabling her drug use. Michael says, if anything was going to be done, I was going to be the one to show it to her, he said. Her brother's friend, Keith Kelly, claimed he was the first to give Whitney drugs, marijuana and cocaine on her 16th birthday. It's interesting because, yeah, I thought that kind of came later in her life. So Mm -hmm. did not know she kind of grew up around that. 
Right. So if you do something for that long of time, it almost becomes just like a natural part of your life, part of who you are, and maybe even part of your identity. Now, the documentary that I watched didn't go into as much detail about when Whitney began and how or why, but I figured that that might be a little bit of relevant information to take on into her career with her. For sure, yeah. Whitney's friend named Ellen LeVar had met Whitney at age 18 and said that they had also together been doing drugs at that time. In 1996, Whitney did an interview and talked about her religion, saying that she could have gotten into more trouble, but she didn't want her parents to be mad at her and she didn't want God to be mad at her. <laughs> so luckily it didn't get worse, I suppose. Yeah. And when I, yeah, when we think more trouble, I guess we just have to fill in the blanks with our own yeah. mind or biases and there wasn't any more detail about that. So we'll just leave that as it is. Okay. Whitney had some longtime friends, uh, friends who had worked with her for 18 years. A woman named Robin would become very important into Whitney's story. She said that Whitney was so cool, even when Whitney was super young and really starting to get her face on magazine covers. Whitney wouldn't even tell people that she was on the cover of Seventeen magazine. I would have been telling everyone. I know. So, you know, Whitney would go over to Robin's house, and Robin's mom would be like, "Look at you on the cover of Seventeen. Whitney would be like, "Yeah." Oh, that's cute. Robin protected Whitney at school when people would pick on her. And Robin would eventually become instrumental into helping Whitney pick her career choices as well. Keith Reynolds from Arista Records said that Whitney was a sweet kid, insecure, not polished, and concerned about whether people would like and accept her. He said that she never worried about her talent, that she was sure of. It was her looks that worried her a little bit more. I mean, she's a woman. We all went through that. Have you seen her? She had nothing to worry about. She She's definitely so didn't have anything to worry about. <laughs> God, just so oh, stunning. You see her and you're yeah. stunned. And her smile is just amazing. Like, What a bright ball of joy. Oh, yeah. Besides her mother being a singer, I had also mentioned a famous person in Whitney's lineage, and that's Dionne Warwick, who is her cousin. That is crazy. I love Dionne Warwick so much. She's become pretty popular right now on Twitter. I don't know if you know, but... Uh, no, I didn't know that. She's very active on Twitter, um, asking like, you know, the younger generation questions and <gasps> interacting. That's her. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I've seen that. And she's funny. She is. Yeah. That's so cool. Right. So at this young age, Whitney was surrounded by talent and connections, but it's not like it was... What's that word when you get things just because you're surrounded by like famous people? Nepotism? Nepotism? It wasn't that at all. Whitney, her talent spoke for itself. Yeah. The talent just ran in the family. Whitney was still moldable. Her first television appearance was at 19 and the clips of her at that age just gives you goosebumps. She had short hair. She looks so chic. Yeah. Doug Daniel from Arista Records talks about her being marketed to a mass market. He's a black man, and he said that a part of Whitney would always be from the hood, but she adapted so well to TV interviews because she was classy, her mother was sissy, her cousin was Dion, and she was absolutely meant for this. The way she was marketed was interesting to a largely white population because from the beginning, her people had made the, you know, like her uh, management and her team had made the choice to market her to pop music deliberately yeah. pop kenneth had said mm -hmm. that if the music was i quote too black sounding too r&b they would send it back kenneth said That's that really interesting yep i find that like um another person that happened with was mariah carey where you know they kind of made her tone down um you know, her background because they wanted her to be like super mainstream. So you, you got it. You nailed it. Kenneth said that if the music, um, you know, was like we said to R&B, they would send it back. They wanted more Joni Mitchell. They wanted more Mariah Carey. Uh, 
Wow. And then another quote is that they didn't want to market Whitney as the female James Brown. Why not? Like, come on. (laughs) Here's the thing. And if I had done Aretha, we might have a better idea of why. Although Aretha was decades before this, it might have made more sense. By the way, this time I wrote my notes on a Word document because that (laughs) shit can never get erased. So... (laughs) I'm still yeah. sore about my Aretha Franklin episode getting deleted. Uh, I know after all that hard work. Moving on. Whitney's album, debut album, received great reviews. Mm-hmm. The only criticism, and I don't know who from who, like I said, this isn't the most detailed account, but <laughs> the one criticism was that her voice was so good, it shouldn't have been wasted on pop cliches. But that's what they market her. Like, that's what they want. <laughs> okay. I know. Uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. Whitney said that she went into the studio not wanting to make a pop album, but to make good music. So yeah. she was like, I don't, I don't care if it's pop. Or I just want to make good music. She ended up selling 25 million copies worldwide. Whoa. Yeah. The greatest love of all would have... More consecutive number one hits than the Beatles. Oh my goodness. In January of 1986, she won six American Music Awards. Damn. That year in February, she was top female vocalist at the Grammys. Just right out of the gate, killing it. Yeah. When they did a kind of montage of Whitney winning these awards, it was just like a different artist going like, Whitney Houston, Whitney Houston. And the award goes to Whitney Houston. (laughs) It was great. And then she's on stage. She's accepting her award. She's crying. She looks so beautiful. I get so emotional is playing in the background. Uh, yeah so like at this time you know she got the best-selling debut album she was the most awarded female act of all time she was just she came out of the gates flying yeah my goodness yeah so with seven consecutive number one records she was everywhere so unfortunately we learned that the black audience felt like Whitney had sold out she was nominated at the Soul Train Awards And when her picture came across the screen, and then I believe the video in the background was for I Want to Dance with Somebody, she received a massive boo from the audience. Whoa. Again, I had no idea about this. This is crazy. She responded to that saying that she just had to sit there and smile, but it was devastating to her emotionally. I bet. Whitney wanted to cross over to Black music, and she wanted to do it for her. Mm Mm-hmm. Her favorite saying was, can I be me? Yeah. Which is what this documentary is named after. And also, can I be me is going to start to make more sense as we get to know her too. Okay. Whitney has said, I've made all of these people all of this money, but I'm not happy. She felt that she had been created. She had been molded. And she wanted to break out of the controlling family and work situation. But as we know, once that machine gets started, it's really hard to turn it down or turn it off. Yep. Whitney had the career that her mother had always wanted. Apparently, Whitney Houston's mother, Sissy, has her own book. And in that book says that Whitney stole her style. How did, what? Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, things with Whitney and her family are going to kind of begin to get sticky as the fame rises as well which could only have contributed to her struggles with her mental health and her health oh yeah absolutely yeah her relationship with her father also became deep and complicated because her father and mother both worked for her so did her brothers and her sister-in-law that's tough you can imagine how complicated that gets yeah Of course, as a young woman in the music industry, people were always asking her if she was seeing someone about her relationships. And she would reply sometimes like, am I seeing somebody? I'm seeing you right now. I'm seeing you with my own two eyes. (laughs) You know, kind of take the pressure off, I suppose. 
somebody had asked her if she was dating Eddie Murphy. And then it cuts to Serge Gainsbourg. Oh, do you remember that? No. Oh, my God. So fucking Serge Gainsbourg. (laughs) They're on um, French television. So the audience is is all French speakers. But Serge, who's like pretty old at this point and like looks wasted, looks over at Whitney and goes, I want to fuck her. Oh my God. Whitney's eyes go huge. And I think he might even kind of like reach out his hand to her and she kind of like (laughs) retracts. And then Whitney's just like has the stunned look on her face. And then the interviewer is like in French saying to the audience, like he just said, um, he thinks that she's very beautiful. He thinks that she's very beautiful. (laughs) And then, and then Serge repeats in French that he wants to fuck her. Of course. Oh, Serge, come on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So anyways, that's the kind of (laughs) bullshit that Whitney had to put up with. (laughs) So in an interview with Whitney, she has said that she enjoys what she does, singing and performing, but there's a lot about the business that she doesn't like, that she's subjected to, that's not fun and isn't fair. Yeah. So we can fill in the blanks there. Yeah. Not too far into Whitney's career, people began to question Whitney's sexuality. Oh, yeah. Because Whitney was so often seen with Robin, and Robin was a tall, lean, short-haired woman, Whitney's best friend, almost like Whitney's sister, people began to circulate rumors about Whitney's sexuality. Yeah. And who cares anyway? My God. Right. So at this time, too, you have to, we have to put ourselves there, you know. It was men who did promotions. The 700 music promoters were 99% heterosexual and 99% homophobic. So they had a field day with this. Yeah. At this time, it wasn't cool to have a lesbian in affair. Yeah. Or I mean, that's not even a great way to put it. I might have just taken those words. Like it wasn't, it wasn't accepted. Like it is normalized to be bisexual, to be a lesbian in music. And so this became a conflict. Someone being interviewed had said that the family was riddled with drugs and maybe they should have focused on that rather than her sexuality. But as we know, it's like, well, how about everybody? Yeah. Just business. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's hard though. Like you're, and then that's the thing too, is like, well, you chose to be in the public. So people have the right to no, no, no. But yeah. Yeah. So one of Whitney's friends was interviewed and she said that Black female homosexuality was something that was never spoken about. Yet, Black male homosexuality was. Hmm. Whitney didn't have a closeness or feel safe with many people. And she had that with Robin. Robin cared for her. Whitney found safety and solace from that. Whitney was also a very affectionate person. She loved to be held. She loved to be embraced loved to be supported. Allison Samuels, a friend and writer, had said that she did think that Whitney was bi. And then later, Bobby Brown would come out to say, I do think she was bi. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Whitney was never able to proclaim this or embrace this herself. In a 2013 Oprah interview with Whitney's mother, Sissy, Oprah asked Sissy if she thought Whitney was gay. Her mom said she didn't know. Oprah had asked if it would have mattered if she was. And Sissy said, yes. Then Oprah asked, so were you happy when Bobby Brown came into the picture? (laughs) And Sissy said, no. No. (laughs) Whitney met Bobby Brown at the Soul Train Awards that night she got booed. He sang My Prerogative, and he actually received three awards that night. (laughs) Whitney approached him, tapped him on the shoulder. And in Bobby Brown's words says, she was trying to get my attention because I was fly. I knew it. (laughs) And she knew it. (laughs) 
Bobby Brown grew up in Boston and they had immediate chemistry. The 1999 World Tour, Bobby Brown became more of her act. From the clips I saw, they sing and dance together on stage. And my opinion is that he's not anywhere as cute or anywhere as talented as her. I agree. Patty Howard said that he, Bobby, really did love Whitney as herself. He understood her pressures. He understood her pain. And they gave each other acceptance. She loved him and they loved each other. In a 1993 interview with Barbara Walters, Whitney said that she was happy. She was blessed. She was married to him. And at the time when she met him, she said, you know, he had been a womanizer. Here's the thing, though. He had been. He he remained a womanizer. Yeah. Yeah. He would have affairs with women on tour, maybe even on Whitney's Mm -hmm. tour, you know, so that didn't help Whitney's health either. Of course, they would have a child together, Bobby Christina Brown. The impression that I got from the videos that they showed with Whitney and Bobby is that they had a lot of fun together. They played around. She'd ride on Bobby's back. And she just seemed like a really open and happy and sweet person and seemed to really treat everybody around her really sweetly. That's good. Mm-hmm. Bobby Brown calls himself the original bad boy okay, and said that <laughs> in order for Whitney to be with him, she needed to be the sweetest and the meanest person in the world. Uh, okay. Sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> Tina Brown, Bobby's sister, said that she never saw a bond like the one between the two of them. She lived in a house with them, actually, for a few years. So she really got to see the ins and outs of their relationships. She says they were funny. They'd do skits from movies. They'd climb furniture. They'd chase each other. Yeah, I really liked the home movie parts of the documentary. As we know, Whitney transitioned from singing into movies. The bodyguard was huge. I've never seen the bodyguard. So I think it's time yeah I think it's you know I'm always looking like oh Friday Saturday night let's watch a movie I'm gonna do the bodyguard this weekend like you said when you watch it you're like damn she's like really in her prime just at her best like you'll enjoy it so speaking of this movie David Foster's interviewed and he talks about how Kevin Costner convinced him to put in the acapella part of the beginning of the song Wow, good on Kevin. Whitney's career exploded even more after The Bodyguard. It grossed $411 million worldwide. Her actual bodyguard was interviewed, and he said that the movie was very true to their working relationship, except he never took a bullet for her, and they never made love. (laughs) Pretty big exceptions. (laughs) He's an interesting guy who's going to come to play a little bit later, too. Cool. So why don't we take a break? You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Bantwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. After The Bodyguard came out, Whitney really started getting recognized in a whole different way, and her drug use began to increase. Hmm. 
1995, she overdosed on cocaine while making Waiting to Exhale. I remember seeing that movie in the theater. Was it good? Do you remember it? Yeah. Yeah, I I should watch that too. Damn. And the song that she did was like, shoot, shoot. Oh, shoot. Yeah, it was good. So good. Whitney says that at this time, she was doing drugs less recreationally and more out of necessity. Mm. It was during the bodyguard that she realized this is a problem. Yeah. In 1996, Whitney discussed how success doesn't change you, but fame does. She said there's a misconception that when you become famous, your whole life is perfect because you have money. But of course, she says, and as we've said before, money and fame don't make you happy. Yeah. Whitney says you have to find happiness within yourself. Tragically, I don't think that Whitney was able to ever find happiness within herself. That's too bad. Mm -hmm. Whitney struggled to complete this 1999 world tour. Her rise to fame took the wind out of her. She turned to God and her faith. She knew her gift came from him, but she felt like she was letting God down because she didn't take care of her body, which was her instrument. Someone in the dock, actually speaking about God, said she could caress a note like it's a God thing. Yeah, she could. Mm-hmm. A security guard had said that Whitney and Robin were like twins. They had a bond that Bobby Brown could never remove and that Bobby couldn't remove Robin from the relationship. And that frustrated him. He wanted Whitney to remove Robin, but Whitney wouldn't do it. I was wondering about that. If he had an issue with Robin. Of course he did. Yeah. Robin said that she knew how to take care of Whitney. She knew what she wanted. She didn't have to be told what Whitney needed. She knew she took the initiative. There are these beautiful shots of Robin sitting in front of the barricades, singing to Whitney's songs, and you could just see the love and admiration that comes from her. Like Robin didn't want anything out of Whitney just for her to succeed. It sounds like Robin is Whitney's true soulmate. Yes, that's a really great point. Yeah. (sighs) There's clips of Bobby Christina standing on the side of the stage. And then going on stage with Whitney as young as four years old, she comes out with a microphone. She's adorable. But then also we're like, it's so sad because you also know the fate of this other angel. Yeah. Whitney calls her Bobby Chris. And she said that she cherished her daughter, even though they had to spend months apart when Whitney was working. Oh, I forgot that in regards to Bobby Brown and Robin, there is a scene where they're like getting into a bit of physical altercations and you can see that Robin's like really uncomfortable. Like Bobby Brown might be trying to like play around a little bit and Robin's just like, fuck off. Yeah, yeah. So at this point in the documentary, as we're like kind of getting into the later parts of this tour, you can see that Whitney is starting to look very tired. She's still beautiful and not unhealthy, but like, tired and Bobby Christina came into Whitney and Bobby's environment just as things started getting worse for them so the bodyguard the one that I had mentioned previously filed a report after a disastrous trip to Singapore he really felt like his job was to protect everyone from not only the outside world but also from themselves and so since he was privy to what was happening inside he had filed a report saying that what they were doing and the path that they were on were dangerous to themselves and to bobby christina wow i mean good for him for doing what he felt was best for all of them right but so here's the thing in that report he included that everyone on the personnel was on drugs and he put it in writing he was fired that was the answer to the do something to help her report he believes that if someone would have helped both bobby christina and whitney would still be alive today uh that poor guy must carry that around on him but at least he tried you know Mm -hmm. as we mentioned Whitney had started her drug use before she met Bobby Brown. Now, here's the thing is that Bobby Brown, when he met Whitney Houston, didn't do drugs, but he was heavily into alcohol. Whitney wasn't a drinker. 
So as you can imagine what happened, yep. they brought out the worst in each other. Yep. They became codependent on each other. And this was a disaster. Mm-hmm. Bobby Brown did sleep with other women on tour. And Whitney didn't want to go against God and get a divorce. And she wanted Bobby Christina to have a father. Whitney's self-esteem was plummeting. And Bobby Brown played on that. He would say, you don't deserve this. You just got lucky. You're actually not that talented. You're no better than me. Ugh, come on. Whitney never had belief that she was an amazing person and Bobby contributed to that. Robin has said that she did try to keep Whitney off drugs and they have arguments about Whitney getting high. Her mother knew Whitney was doing drugs in the late 80s. Robin had went and told Whitney's mother and then Robin was actually blamed. And then Bobby was blamed. Yeah. So nobody was kind of holding Whitney accountable and then nobody trying to help or anything. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. So the security guard had said that it wasn't just one person. It was many people who were responsible for Whitney's demise. For sure. Yeah. Her friend Ellen LeVar said that there was nothing she could do. She wasn't a family member. She wasn't high enough in the food chain to really do anything. She tried speaking to other people in the camp saying that maybe she should go to rehab, but everyone was on the payroll. Everyone Mm. needed their rents paid. And Whitney felt deeply for these people. Yeah. So her friend had said she would try to sneak things in here and there when she was like doing her hair and helping her with makeup, but it was no use. So not only is Whitney dealing with all of these things personally, we have to think about what kind of singer Whitney was and that she had to pull everything out of her body to hit those notes. Everything out of her soul had to come out to be put into these songs. And that was exhausting for her. I bet. Yeah. At the end of 99, tensions between Bobby Brown and Robin hit an all-time high. Things were so chaotic that Robin eventually just left. Uh. She may have been paid off to leave, but once Robin left, Whitney spiraled. Yeah, of course. In the year 2000 at the Academy Awards, Whitney really had a rough go. The rehearsals weren't great, and she was changing up melodies, changing her own notes. She came in on the wrong song, and Burt Bacharach, the musical director, said it was startling. Uh, that must have been so difficult, like, a period of time. Yeah, he said, like, it was live music, and Whitney was a wild card. It was dangerous. So two days before the show, Whitney was replaced. Mm. Whitney took place in a Michael Jackson tribute and she looked emaciated. People would say, oh, you look great. But one of her good friends took her into a bathroom and said, look at yourself. You're dying. Wow. Whitney did look at herself and said, I know. Good realization. First step. Whitney opened up to Diane Sawyer about her drug use. But if her life wasn't already hard at this moment... Her own father tried to sue her for $100 million when he was 81 and sick. Are you kidding? Mm-hmm. Oh he said God. He, he said he was owed money. For what? Being a father? Mm. Whitney's voice was barely uh. audible in this interview. Her voice was gone. So this thing with her father was a huge blow for Whitney. It really broke something inside of her that could never be repaired. I just can't even imagine like we were so close to our dads and like, yeah, if that would be devastating. Absolutely. At this point, Whitney semi-retired. She moved to Atlanta and went to rehab. It didn't stick. Yeah. There are scenes in the documentary where Whitney's in her home in Atlanta. She's drinking a martini. She is smoking a cigarette or something. She looks inebriated. And it really just that look of her gave me that flashback of what tabloids had been running about her at that time. Mm -hmm. And again, the word shocking comes to mind. Her house in Atlanta looked beautiful. Like it was actually modest. And then, I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember Us Magazine published photos of Whitney Houston's bathroom? No. So photos got leaked somehow, and there are photos of Whitney's bathroom that is super dirty, super messy, and there is crack in plain view. Okay. Yeah. So she's struggling, and people are just, like, betraying her with these kinds of photos or stuff in the media. Yeah, I was going to say, who the hell did that? Jesus. It's just terrible. 
Her friend Patty Howard said that she was her friend, sister, so loving and generous, but people wanted to focus on criticisms of her. Where was the appreciation for Whitney's contributions to the world? Hmm. Whitney's drug counselor said that she wanted help. She wanted to be normal. She wanted to be happy in love and be with her daughter. She didn't care about fancy clothes and cars. There's this like weird scene where it doesn't seem like Bobby and Whitney seem to realize they're on camera, kind of like a home movie type situation. And Bobby Brownin saying is saying about Bobby Christina, we've got a big kid. I saw her from the side and she's getting a chin. And Whitney starts to cry and says, don't talk like that. She's a star's daughter. So Whitney started to realize pressure that was going to be placed on Bobby Christina as she's growing up in the spotlight. Whitney's $250 million fortune really went to supporting her family and her friends. She said that it was her job to take care of everybody else. In 2007, Whitney and Bobby Brown divorced. This was really difficult for her, and she reverted back to drugs. Did you ever watch Bobby Brown's reality show? I didn't even know he had one. It aired for one season, and that was it. But it gave some kind of like little view into their life. I thought I found maybe one episode on YouTube, but I just didn't like his vibe, so I didn't uh, continue on with that. Her friend Ellen said that there was a period of 10 years where she waited for the phone call that would eventually come, the one that Whitney passed away. That phone call came in February of 2012. Some say that if Robin had remained in Whitney's life, Whitney may not have died. Mm-hmm. Robin says there was no one like her. She was an angel. Robin now actually lives with her partner, Lisa, and they have twins. Ah, oh, that's nice. I'm glad Robin was able to move forward with her life. But that's so tragic. Yeah. So Whitney Houston died in 2012. She drowned in a bathtub in the Beverly Hilton. Heart disease and cocaine use were said to have been contributing factors in her death. The Irish Times says, In circumstances that were eerily reminiscent of those surrounding her mother's death, Bobby Christina Brown, the only daughter of Houston and Brown, was found unconscious in a bathtub on January 31st, 2015. Wow, I didn't realize how similar their passings were. Yeah, so Bobby Christina had spent six months in a medically induced coma, but then she passed and she was only 22. So young, my God. That is so tragic. When asked how she would like to be remembered, Whitney said, it probably doesn't matter because people will remember me how they want. I want people to remember me as a really nice person, someone who cared, someone who did things righteously. Uh, Whitney, so beautiful. So that's how we are going to remember and honor and celebrate Whitney in this way. We're going to listen to her music. We're going to watch her movies and we're going to honor her memory. And that is the episode on Whitney Houston. That was so beautifully done. Uh, There's one thing about Whitney where I'm sure you've experienced this too. No matter where you are, if someone puts on a Whitney Houston record, everyone goes crazy. (laughs) Everyone sings along. Everyone dances, Um, you know, working in music venues when they play songs in between. Usually people aren't singing along or anything. You know, you're getting your beer, you're talking to your friends. But if you put on a Whitney Houston song, everyone just shuts up and (laughs) sings and dances. Like, it's amazing. Um, And like, I feel like that was like her energy, you know, like happy and bright. And she just gives so much joy. You know, you hear, she gives it to you when you hear her music and like, how much does everybody just want to dance with somebody right now? <laughs> I want to feel the heat with somebody. <laughs> I want to dance with somebody who loves me. Exactly. Yes. Oh, man. She was just fantastic. And that was such a great episode. Thank you so much for that, Shanti. All right. No problem. Well, I'm glad I took the chance and I said, well, let's just try and see if we can get an episode this way. And, um, you know, I won't do it all the time, of course. I've already, I've already got books on the go, but I just wanted yeah. to give it a try, especially with um, being so busy with the puppy. It, took, yeah. it was a little bit more time efficient. 
Yeah. How's Dale doing? He's doing wonderful. He's on a really like easy to follow schedule. And so we have, you know, two hour breaks to while he sleeps very soundly and very cutely in his crate to get our work done and do what we need to do. Then we go back downstairs and we wake him up or he wakes up and he goes out and then he comes in and we have a play and we train and his training is going fantastic. We've only had him for a few days, but he's so smart. He knows the command to come out of his crate. He knows what command means to um, go out of a door. He can sit, he can lay down. He's just wonderful. And he's We've only had him for a couple of days. Ah, that's so amazing. And he's just the most perfect, sweet, cuddly looking creature ever. So. He's, he's the perfect dog for us. He's exactly who we've been waiting for. Yeah. Well, I'll let you get back to Dale now. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you everybody for listening. You can check out our TikTok. Lynx is doing an amazing job over there and she's working hard and looking so damn good and giving us so much great information. <laughs> we have a Patreon for some bonus content. You can have access to all of our backlog of all of our bonus content at patreon.com slash podcast. We've got awesome merch. Everybody seems to really be enjoying the quality, the fit, the graphics on the t-shirt. So we'll put up a link for that. Everyone's looking so good. Every time someone posts a new uh, video or photo, I'm just loving it. So thank you everyone for all of the support and being fantastic models for us. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's a joy seeing that. And check out our Instagram too, because Shanti's been making amazing stories and um, I, I really like the work that you're doing over it's there. It's easy because we're already following these amazing accounts, all different kinds of women in all facets of yeah. media and entertainment. So it's so easy to just give them a share and be like, go follow these amazing women. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next week. See you later. Muses is researched, edited, and produced by us, Chantella Mew and Lynx O'Leary. Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you, and let's make season two even more memorable together.